are listening to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, because we have an important topic to address here, that being forming techniques. So you'll recall in the last episode, uh, we laid out the basics of the production sequence from start to finish. So beginning with how uh, raw materials uh, may be obtained and processed by a potter or an assistant. And we fi uh, finished with considerations about the firing process and uh, what, if anything, happens directly after firing. So today's episode will spotlight primary forming techniques used by traditional potters to manufacture vessels. So by primary forming techniques, um, we're talking about the ways a traditional potter uh, forms the initial vessel shape. Now determining how a pot was formed is a principal task of pottery analysis in archeology. span the archaeologist's uh, task of reconstructing the forming techniques a potter used may not be a simple one, though. As Rice says, quote, successive production steps often obliterate evidence of earlier treatments, end quote. But even so, um, you know, it may be possible that the interiors of bottles and necks uh, may bear traces of evidence uh, as these spaces are typically too narrow uh, for a potter's fingers to smooth over. Now, I think we know by this stage that we cannot reconstruct every single step that uh, an ancient potter may have taken uh, unless they were doing an ethnographic, a live ethnographic observation. But by looking at some clues on archaeological pottery, we can begin to infer which forming method or methods a potter may have employed. Often we can infer forming technique based on visual inspection, and we really don't need to rely so much on specialized equipment. Pottery analysts look for uh, what are called attributes or characteristics on pottery that signal to us which forming technique may have been used. And I think as you'll see in this week's learning materials, Sometimes the most revealing clue is actually how a vessel breaks. So the way a thing falls apart often reflects how that thing was made. So first, um, plastic clay uh, requires an appropriate surface uh, to rest on uh, during the forming process as the potter works the clay. Um, uh, some vessels uh, may also require support uh, to prevent a slumping uh, as well as sticking. A potter's own hand uh, may actually be suitable enough to support a small pot uh, directly in the palm during the forming process. But, uh, you know, larger vessels require uh, bats, which are, which are really like rests for the pot to, to sit on. Um, and this can be a surface as simple as, say, the dirt floor of a house or a workshop um, uh, to other things like woven mats, uh, wooden boards, uh, a ring of cloth works well, 
um, or even uh, baskets, for example. Now, a potter may sit stationary uh, during the forming process as she rotates the vessel on a turntable, uh, which rotates the vessel uh, almost kind of like a rotating cake stand. Maybe that's the best analogy to make. Um, and we see this in places like the American Southwest and in Mesoamerica. Um, now, one of the more well-known examples of this simple turntable is called the puki, uh, which is used by Pueblo potters. It's reminiscent, uh, actually, of a shallow dish um, that can be rotated and turned as it supports a round-bottomed vessel during the formation um, of the base. And what I'll do uh, is link you, excuse me, link you to a recommended video that demonstrates uh, the puki. Uh, in your uh, learning path for the week. Now, I do want to mention that this is not the same thing as a true wheel, um, which we're going to talk about in some detail uh, in just a few moments. In the absence of a turntable, though, um, some potters may choose to orbit themselves around the vessel. So the vessel remains stationary, but the potter is the one who's doing the moving. So she may uh, orbit back and forth. She may orbit clockwise or counterclockwise as she works the clay into the desired form. Now, one way archaeologists can classify pottery is based on the technique that we believe was used to form a vessel. So the main categories of what we call primary forming techniques are hand building, molding, and throwing. In some cases, though, we see potters combining several primary forming techniques in one vessel. So we call those compound or composite forming techniques because they're blending several techniques together. So why don't we kick off here by talking about a couple different forms of hand building. Um, these are coiling, pinching, drawing, and slab. So the most common of these is the coil method, uh, which may be used to form a whole vessel or perhaps just a portion of it. Um, it's a method that is rather well suited uh, actually for large vessels um, like storage jars, um, as well as vessels that have round or pointed bases. Now with this method, uh, ropes or uh, fillets of clay are formed in the potter's hands. These coils may vary in thickness, but a potter will aim to make these um, about two to three times thicker than the intended thickness of the vessel wall. So Rye explains that, uh, explains that these may range from about uh, five millimeters uh, for smaller vessels upwards to perhaps three centimeters uh, or more uh, for larger ones. So the coils themselves can be stacked on top of each other in a couple different ways. So what's called ring building involves laying rings of clay um, directly on top of each other 
So here each ring actually forms a separate course. Segmental coiling is when a potter uses several ropes to create a ring. Spiral coiling involves very long ropes of clay that form more than one ring course. To quote Rye here, uh, he says, quote, the longer the coil, the more skill is needed. So spiral coiling is a method um, that requires a, a bit more mastery because you're, uh, you're managing a longer uh, rope of clay. But really, no matter the coil technique that's used to create the pot, um, the potter will bond or weld the coils together by blending those corrugations uh, throughout the production sequence. I'm going to link you to a brief coil construction demo by Potter Andy Ward um, in your learning path this week that I do really recommend uh, streaming here. I do want to just briefly note, um, however, uh, that there are some examples of uh, this so-called corrugated wear, however. Um, and these have been documented in the American Southwest, where potters uh, deliberately leave the silhouette of the coil intact. Um, this is done uh, for more aesthetic reasons. Coiling can be uh, fairly easily identified, I'd say, in archaeological sherds um, when the coils are not so well bonded, right? Um, sometimes you can almost feel, you can literally feel the corrugation of the coils by running your fingertips over the surface of the vessel wall. And on broken sherds, uh, the edge of a fragment may appear jagged and irregular um, and actually almost have this uh, step-like fracture uh, to it where we can actually see the coils in profile. Another hand-building technique I want to highlight for you um, is pinching and drawing. Uh, these are pretty similar, uh, I'd say, in so that both techniques involve creating a vessel from a single mass of clay without adding clay during the process. So in contrast, uh, you know, for example, coiling adds clay uh, during the process. So as you'll see in the demo video that I uploaded for you in your learning path, um, pinch pots are formed by inserting one finger or a few um, into the plastic mass in the center of it. The thumb and fingers are used to squeeze or pinch the clay into a desired form. Now, this, uh, this method actually creates shallow indentations on the vessel wall that actually move upward and correspond to where the potter's fingertips were placed, uh, which we can actually see in archaeological shirts, which is pretty cool. Um, pinching is best for smaller vessels that can fit really right in the hand, um, but it may also be used to form uh, the base portion of much larger vessels. Now, drawing is typically used for larger vessels. With drawing, a potter draws the clay upward, pulling and stretching the clay upward to form the vessel. Drawing uh, may also uh, be used in tandem with coiling 
Um, some potters draw the coils up as they form vessel walls. Um, evidence of drawing uh, may appear as these sort of long vertical grooves that look like fingers on the surface of the vessel where the fingers uh, drew up the clay. Slab building is another hand building technique to highlight today. It's typically used to form uh, really larger vessels, um, and it involves rolling out uh, flat slabs of clay into like a pancake. So these slab walls uh, may be joined with slip, which functions almost kind of like an adhesive, or uh, you know the slab walls may be joined by smudging and blending uh, the slab joints together. Now, this technique works well uh, for large vessels, as we said, uh, but also rectangular vessel shapes. And I have a, a brief video demonstration for you to stream on slab forming by Potter uh, Patricia Bridges. Now, Owen Rye uh, notes that the slab forming technique, quote, is difficult to recognize from archaeological specimens but should be considered a possibility when very large vessels are encountered, end quote. So, you know, however, fractures that appear at the joints really are a clue to look for. Uh, but because great care is usually taken, you know, to secure the slabs together at the joint, um, heavily scraped or heavily combed vessels may in fact be a kind of excuse me, indirect evidence uh, that hints uh, uh, at slab formation. Another primary forming technique is molding. So with molding, a round sheet or slab of clay is uh, pressed uh, into a mold, um, which may be convex or it may be uh, concave. Uh, baskets, gourds, uh, plaster, uh, pottery vessels, and even fragments of larger vessels may in fact be suitable molds. Um, we actually have uh, some ethnographic evidence for the use of half coconuts as mold among Melu potters of Papua. And the puki, uh, which I think you'll recall I mentioned just a few moments ago uh, in reference to turntables and work surfaces, uh, may actually perform double duty as molds as well. Um, a parting agent uh, like sand, powdered clay, or ash um, must be applied to the mold uh, to prevent the clay uh, from sticking to it. Um, then the clay uh, is applied uh, to the interior or the exterior of the mold. Um, a mold may be used to form an entire vessel uh, or perhaps just a part of it like an appendage. Traditional potters of the Yucatan uh, will actually use molds to expedite the manufacturing process. Uh, molds can be uh, pretty easy to use, um, so it can be a technology accessible by potters of all skill levels, um, even uh, apprentices or children. Now that being said, 
Um, I do want to mention here that, you know, some molded pottery can get pretty elaborate. And I love Michelle Erickson's work uh, in general, uh, but I love her work here on molded or what she calls laid English agateware. Agateware was this type of fancy pottery made in the 18th century, uh, made in England, uh, made in likeness to the semi-precious agate stone, quote, the most beautiful of all substances, end quote, according uh, to, uh, to Erickson and Hunter in the article that we're reading this week. So agateware is just so ornamental. Um, it's actually sometimes called the Holy Grail by ceramic enthusiasts. But its production sequence has remained a bit elusive uh, to pottery analysts because of the level of skill uh, that's required to produce it. So as you're reading, I want you to, uh, to take note of the aim of Erickson and Hunter's article, uh, which is one that entails, quote, decoding and recreating English agateware with the information contained in the actual ware themselves. Careful examination and considerable trial and error experimentation produced results that we are now able to demonstrate end quote. So uh, after much experimentation and trial and error, as they say, Erickson and Hunter's research uh, suggests that laid agateware um, is pressed into a mold after the very complex clay pattern is prepared. The marbleized effect of the clay um, is created through kind of complicated process that involves layering different colored clay slabs on top of each other. Then the slabs are thinned out uh, by slapping the mass um, onto a work area. Um, after it's thinned, the slab is cut and then restacked several times over, um, which really is what gives the agateware its signature marbleized effect. Um, strips of the mass are then cut and deliberately uh, sort of re-pieced together as a single flat clay mass, uh, which is then, uh, only then, pressed into a plaster or a clay mold. Now, Michelle Erickson filmed such an excellent demonstration of her technique used to recreate English laid agateware um, that I will go ahead and link you to. So I really do recommend uh, checking her work out to get a nice sense of really how much mastery uh, molding uh, may call for. Now, the use of molds can be seen in archeological pottery um, for example, seaming may appear where the mold was joined or at the edge of the mold. And sometimes um, even that thin layer of the parting agent uh, may remain on the surface um, and even contrast in color or texture a bit with parts of the vessel that did not receive the parting agent. Now, I think it's the potter's wheel that most, you know, lay people associate with the forming process. Despite that, you know, so much archaeological pottery that we recover, especially the oldest, uh, the oldest examples, are actually uh, handmade. 
So the Potter's Wheel, uh, as we uh, mentioned in an earlier episode of the Pottery series, was an invention that spread throughout the old world with some of the earliest forms of, uh, of a true wheel dating to probably the very late third millennium BC. And these have been identified in the Near East. According to Rice, a true wheel involves the use of, quote, rotary motion and centrifugal force to create high-speed rotation, end quote, on the order of about uh, 50 to up to 150 uh, RPMs. Now, there are two major types of potter's wheels, the kick wheel and the stick wheel. Kick wheels consist of an upper wheel and a lower wheel, joined together by a vertical axle. The clay is worked on the upper wheel, which is the smaller of the two, while the potter kicks the bottom wheel, which is called the flywheel, uh, into motion. The faster she kicks, the more speed the flywheel gains. In comparison, the stick wheel is a simpler and smaller device that consists of only one wheel uh, made of stone, uh, concrete, or clay, where the plastic mass is worked directly upon. So uh, with stick wheels, they're rotated by the potter or even an assistant who inserts a stick into a slot or a hole on the wheel. Holding the stick, um, they'll turn the wheel uh, perhaps up to 30 or 40 rotations at a time, uh, which is actually enough to cause the wheel to turn on its own, uh, perhaps uh, for up to five minutes as the potter works. So an advantage of the stick wheel is that it's portable, making it pretty ideal for communities that are a little bit less sedentary and more mobile. Whereas the kick wheel, uh, you know, being a much larger and heavier apparatus, is typically only seen in more sedentary societies uh, with large-scale uh, potter workshops. So to begin shaping clay on a wheel, a potter begins by aligning the plastic mass on the center of the wheel. Now this is um, actually a really important step. If the mass is not centered, the pot may not form correctly at all. So this is a very critical first step. So after that's done, a potter opens the mass of clay by inserting the fingers or fist into the center of the mass as the wheel is rotating. The motion that's required to open the plastic mass um, may actually leave a spiral groove on the interior of the base, which we can actually look for archaeologically. So the potter then lifts the clay upward to form the vessel shape, uh, working with one hand on the vessel interior and the other hand on the exterior. The potter will need to re-wet their hands uh, almost constantly to prevent the plastic mass from drying out um, as, it's, uh, excuse me, as it's exposed to air uh, as it spins. A potter may also do what's called drawing from the hump 
or uh, you know producing several small vessels in succession uh, from the same plastic mess. So you'll see a link to a throwing demo by one of my favorite contemporary potters. Uh, this is Joel Cherico, uh, whose work I've been following uh, for quite a few years now. You'll see how Cherico throws mugs from the hump uh, using the kick wheel in the video that I have for you. Uh, Joel is a very fun potter uh, to follow on social media if you're into that kind of thing uh, because he does so many live streams um, and demonstrations. Now there are a number of clues on wheel thrown pottery that do signal uh, to the archaeologist that a pot was thrown on a wheel. The most telling of these is typically the presence of what we call rilling, or these ridges that spile around the vessel walls. Hand impressions uh, may appear at the base of a vessel, where the potter removed it from the wheel. And if a tool was used to apply decoration uh, while the vessel was rotating, uh, the marks will certainly appear continuous and steady whereas lines that appear discontinuous uh, really are more indicative that a tool was used on a stationary vessel. Spiral-shaped fractures uh, near the base um, may actually be common if a potter lifts a vessel off of a wheel uh, using too much pressure. And, uh, S-shaped cracks or fractures on the base uh, may appear if too much pressure, uh, pressure was applied uh, when the plastic mass uh, was opened during uh, a little earlier in the production sequence. Um, though, uh, actually, I was just reading a piece uh, written by Simon Levin, who's a contemporary wood fire potter, um, and Levin believes that these S-shaped uh, cracks are actually more due to the drying process um, as the walls dry faster than the base because the base uh, tends to be a bit more of a meteor uh, uh, mass. So I'll go ahead and link you to that resource in your learning path this week if you'd like to check out that optional material. So after uh, primary forming occurs, the potter uses what are called secondary forming techniques that may alter or refine the vessel's uh, shape and surface. There can be some overlap uh, between secondary forming techniques, decoration, and finishing techniques. So uh, what we'll do uh, is treat all of these topics together in next week's episode. Thank you for listening uh, to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Have a beautiful week and take good care.